When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, and welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney, and I'm super passionate about moving and thinking. On this show, we are going to dive into all things health, fitness, personal development, lifestyle, and political sociocultural. I've always been fascinated by people, and I love learning from the experiences and stories of others. This has been a treat for me, and I hope this is enjoyable and useful for you. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or any way that I can make this a better experience for you, please don't hesitate to reach out. Hello, welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I am here today with Ethan Hay, who is my business partner on Truth Matters. It was actually his idea to start Truth Matters. We're on truthmatters.biz. We are in the process of launching truthmatters.media. And what I will tell you about the past several months of working with Ethan, what is super impressive about him is he is somebody who has amazing ideas. But the thing about most entrepreneurs is they have great ideas and they have zero execution. They're not action people. And Ethan is the exact opposite of that. He has an idea. He's a total dreamer and he takes action, which is really, really impressive. So he had a dream of writing a book and he is now 24 years old. So, you know, he's ready to get into his grave. Um, so at the uh, really young age of 24, and he had this vision a long time ago, and he did it. I mean, how many people do you know who say they're going to write a book and their whole lives go by and they never write a book? Well, Ethan is not one of those people. He wrote a book and he's in the process of talking to editors, and getting it published. So Ethan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you, Courtney? I'm doing well, thank you. So tell me a little bit about your book without giving it all away, but kind of the, uh, <laughs> tell me like, oh, what was the vision? Why did you want to write this? And uh, yeah, so the name is awesome, Tyronis. Tell us it's a little bit about your process of picking that as well. So Tyronis the Renegade is a book and it's book one in a series of books I'm going to be writing. I have a whole universe that I've developed and created. In the process and just actually getting the words out. But how it came to be was as a seven-year-old, I had a very active imagination. And I just started making up stories. And there was one story that I stuck with for a long time and it just gradually developed over time until you see a product that hopefully will come out soon. Um, like as like Courtney said, I'm currently talking to editors and eventually we'll get it to a public, talk to an agent, and from there we'll go see a publisher right now just going through the editing process. Awesome. So you, this, this was born, you were seven years old and you had this idea for the book? Well, it started out really weird because as a kid, I loved dogs and I loved superheroes. I'm like, what if I combine the two? And so I'm like, dogs with cakes, love it. As a seven-year-old and it gradually evolved into this, what it is now. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about how it evolved over the years and uh, how it got to where it is today 
and give us just a little bit of like the cliff notes, you know, again, without giving it away, we want people to read it. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. Give them the, the elevator pitch. Well, why should they read this book? Okay. So I, I was talking to an editor and he said, how would you pitch it? I'm like, I hate to say this, but it's kind of like a combination of Star Wars and Lord of the Rings because both have great stories and great depth, but it has a little bit more of a fantastic fantasy vibe and a sci-fi, but it's still very much a sci-fi novel. Uh, but how it evolved was to start off with the dogs with cape and they could talk and it gradually it changed into dogs that were bipedal and could walk on two legs and could talk, but they were called fire dogs and they were fighting the ice dogs. And then from there, they gradually evolved to having their own world because originally they were the original inhabitants of Earth and they evolved into having their own world. And from there, they became the Temerians. And the Temerians are now a very, are now a humanoid race of creatures that are superhuman, but not Superman. I don't want them to be like Clark Kent or Amana Kal-El from the Superman universe. And the difference is that their muscle density and their bone structure is more dense than humans, making them twice as strong as the average human. But they are still able to die from nuclear blasts. They can still drown. They can still be crushed. So they're not inhuman. And they're impervious to small arms, like a regular handgun won't kill them. It'll bruise them. Yeah. but it won't kill them. But if you throw a grenade at them or a rocket before you fire a rocket launch at them and they get hit by a missile, they will die. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, mm-hmm. Go on. and so the basic premise of this first story is there is the Temerians and there's three groups of Temerians. You have the Temerians who are called purebloods. You have the Sharonax, which literally translate to Shadow Temerians. And then you have the Tolkris, who are half-bloods. And half-bloods are typically a mix between the Temerians and the Sharonax. And typically, the Sharonax are called Shadow Temerians because literally every aspect about them has become dark and evil at a genetic and molecular structure. Say that so, again. Every aspect of them is what? Every aspect of them is dark from the genetic structure down. They have become more conniving, more aggressive more vicious, everything about them is just more dark and evil. Okay. And as a result, many of the times they have, and many times the products of the Tolkraves, so the half-bloods, are the products of unwelcome um, uh, advances in okay. currencies. So they're not typically, they're not viewed highly in Sumerian society. And I'm probably not, <laughs> I probably just gave away the whole book, but oh well. Um, and so basically what happened is that the Tolkien race, as such, they have both half light and half dark personalities. So they're bipolar, basically. And the main character of this book, his name is Tyrannus. And he's a half-blood. The difference between him and other half-bloods is that he has such a strong personality. And half-bloods are typically twice as strong as an average Temerian. Tyrannus is a special Temerian. He's five times as strong as average Temerian, so he's immensely, immensely powerful. And Tolkraves also have this ability to control um, uh, and and several Temerians, some Sharonax, and all the Tolkraves. And the Tolkraves are the most 
sparse and rare of the Temerian race. They have the ability to control certain items of, I'm not a certain, I'm a basically control items at a molecular level with the exception of metal and actual living creatures. I mean, they can do that, but in order to do that, they have to be in tip-top physical and mental condition. Very cool. Yeah, now, now I definitely want to read. Uh <laughs> and Tyronis doesn't go into that. So what happens was there was a major war and that on their planet, Tamara, and that war somehow ended up on Earth. And Tyronis loses his powers and becomes a normal human. And so this first book is just setting the stage. I'm currently working on the second one. And they, it goes through him learning what it means to be a human. That's amazing. So I'm really curious. We, we've talked about this before. We both have tremendous amount of respect for Andrew Breitbart, who I had the great honor of actually meeting. And he would always say that politics was downstream from the culture. And I think that uh, people on the right in general are not very good at owning the culture. <laughs> um, and when they try, they do it with uh, a, they're very pedantic. They're, uh, you know, kind of bland and, you know, they beat you over the head with their messaging and that's not entertainment. <laughs> so no, it's not. I, yeah, it's not entertainment. And I don't think it's as effective because I think one of the reasons that, uh, the other side is really effective with their messaging is because when you inculcate through entertainment, people are not aware that their uh, that their views are being shaped. They're not aware that their that messages are being inculcated. They don't. They just have a visceral emotional response to it, and that they have no control over. And they may be completely subconscious. You know, they may not even be aware. So I think that's incredibly powerful, and I think it is something that you know, people can harness for good or for not so good. And I, that your uh, world that you've created is clearly a, uh, you know, it's definitely a figment of your imagination. There's lots of entertainment value I can see already embedded in this story um, that takes you on a journey. It involves the imagination, the imaginative spirit. Uh, and I think all of these things are in, in, integral to good entertainment value. What are some of the, you know, themes of this uh, world that you've created and of this particular story? So some of the themes are, is the value of friendship, A, and B, taking personal responsibility. Tyrannus in the book, as people go on to read, holds, sees himself as a victim, gives into a lot of depression and despair, and as such turns to alcoholism, and thankfully he has good friends. And there's such a diverse cast of characters. His best friend is Malchus, Joma Oremus. And do you know who Nanso Enazi is? Master? Nanso Enazi. He's an actor. Um, Have you seen the remake of Cinderella, the live action? Cinderella live action? Yeah, the Cinderella live action remake that Disney made. I don't think so. Okay, let's see what else. What about, um, he's been in a lot of movies, but he's a lesser known actor. But anyway, he's a great big black guy, just a older of a dude. And he just has, he's such a phenomenal actor. I love everything about him. And for 
for some reason, when I was writing this story and I thought about Malchus, I thought of Nonstalanazi. Because Malchus is a charmer. He's light-hearted, but he is also incredibly loyal and a good friend of Iran. And Tyrannus, because of what happened in the book, he gives into depression. And as a human, he starts becoming an alcoholic. And the whole time, he's just like, I just want to die. I just want to die. And Malchus the whole time is just like, you got to wake up, man. you got to stop being a victim and stop holding yourself responsible for all these things that happened when you weren't in control of yourself. You have to take responsibility for your life, and you have to be your own person. There's another character. Her name's Ryer. She mm-hmm. is another good friend. And she is... So Malchus is the womanizer. Tyrannus is the stiff. And Ryer is the life of the party. She was the only person that could make Tyrannus laugh. And that's saying something because Tyrannus is just like such a dark, gloomy figure. And he hates everyone. And he kind of thinks of himself as like, oh, I don't like dealing with people because every time I've built relationships with people, they just die. So I'm not going to make that. So she's able to make him laugh. That's awesome. So the, the so friendship in, uh, is a huge uh, theme. Friendship overcoming challenges and actually realizing the power of redemption in people. I didn't necessarily have a theme. I just had a story that I wanted yeah. to tell. Yeah, which <laughs> I, right. But I, I can see I, through stories, stories tell, they, there are lessons we learn from stories, right? I, oh, I was where we're mythological creatures. That is how we learn lessons. We, that's why we share stories. And other and one of the most unique, incredible things about human beings is that we have an ability to learn by proxy, and that is through storytelling. So I don't actually have to walk through a glass door to know that that might not be a good idea. If I see somebody else right before me walk through the glass door and there's no, you know, no, I'm visually impaired. I've walked through many glass doors. I've broken my nose doing so. So, but if they're, yeah, I don't recommend it. Not a good idea. Um, But if I watch somebody else right before me walk through there and I thought, oh, it looks clear. It looks clear. If I see somebody go, oh, okay, I'm not going to do that. You know, or somebody tells me, hey, at that point, it's going to be super clear. You're going to think that it's an open door, but it's not. And they tell me this whole story of what happened to them. I learned the lesson just by hearing it. And I think that's what's so powerful about storytelling. Before we even had the ability to uh, write and put things down on paper, we, you know, human beings shared stories, right? They sat around the fire and talked. Exactly. Yeah. I don't, I'm sure you said, you know who Stephen Fry is, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love Stephen Fry. Yeah. Uh, I saw a video not too long ago with him and on the Graham Norton show. And Graham Norton is a talk show host in, in London and in England. He's a, he's a late night show host and he's amazing because he allows the audience, his and the guests to actually talk and get right. fun at him. And it's a conversation. And Stephen Fry wrote a book called Heroes, which is a continuation of his book Mythos. Okay. And I've read both the books, both phenomenal and amazing. And he was talking about what it is that makes people. He was talking about myths. And he said that the thing that is absolutely amazing is people used to gather around a fire and they talk and tell stories. And that's how relationships were built. That's how legends came into existence. That's how people came to tell stories and value the, the art of storytelling. 
For instance, with the bards of old, right? They loved telling stories. That was their whole job. They would sing a song. They would tell stories while playing a guitar, or whatever instrument they played. I, I don't know. But I love seeing that. And I think that the problem is, is that nowadays storytellers, back to your question about, back to your point about Andrew Breitbart, uh, culture is downstream, that uh, politics is downstream of culture. Far too many people are interested in pushing an agenda and not interested in telling a story that could maybe help perpetuate good values. Well said. That's so well said. I think that is absolutely accurate. And I think that a lot of uh, humanity is lost in that. You know, it, when you're constantly trying to push an agenda, storytelling it teaches us so much about ourselves and about other people, right? And the world around us. Um, you know, so even though you created a world that is somewhat different from Earth, there's so much we can learn about our earthly experience as a, in contrast, right? And that's really powerful. And for every person who reads this, they have their own imagination, their own set of experiences that they're bringing to the, the reading process. And therefore, they're going to have a completely different um, interpretation and uh, experience in, in your... It, it, so there's a shared collective experience and then there's a very personal experience that happens. But the... The overarching uh, experience is that people learn about themselves, the world around us, and about other human beings. And I think that that is part of the uh, advancement of humanity. And I think it's really important. That's why art and culture and uh, books and film, all, all entertainment mediums are really important. So what, are, what are some things that you hope uh, come of people reading your 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 first book and then it sounds like you have a world you want to create a whole series yeah, a whole universe. i have a whole universe <laughs> a whole universe <laughs> oh yeah um so i just want to be able to engage and inspire people and realize and the character tyrannus i didn't realize it at the time but i guess that as you write you kind of realize that the characters are kind of like yourself tyrannus i think is kind of like me because He's a much cooler version of me, but he is a semi version of me because throughout much of my teenage years and into my young adult life, I struggled with depression and I felt lonely and I didn't have a lot of friends. And Tyronis was very much the same way. He only had three solid people that he could genuinely call friends. There was Malchus, there was Ryer, and then you have his fiance who died. Her name was Kalina. And you'll read about that in the book as you read up. Go on. Um, but as a result, he was always trying. He, as a result, he was always trying to overcompensate. Well, not comp overcompensate, but he was always looking out for others. Because while he didn't have a lot of friends, or people that he would call friends, he didn't want others to be hurt like he was. So he constantly went out of his way to take, take people under his wing and train them. I mean, he was brutal about how he did it. But the Sharonaks, like I said, they're a completely depraved group of people and they don't care about anyone. And they've actually, there used to be nine kind of kingdoms on Tamara. 
and they eliminated four of them, completely just extinct. Wow. So they don't care about anyone. They will hunt down and destroy as long as it gives them the ability to keep and maintain power. Right. So I know you said you came up with this idea when you were seven, but there, <laughs> you didn't write it all when you were seven. So no. I'm curious, what were some uh, influences that led to the completion of the book? You know, either, yeah. Tell me. So one of my favorite movies is Finding Forrester. Have you ever seen that? I have. Oh, it's a great God. movie. The fact that Sean Connery doesn't get more recognition for that role versus others is such a shame because that was probably his best acting role. They, they, they never get it for the one they really deserve it for. That, that's my estimation. But No, no, it's yeah. true. And But when I saw that, there was that scene where he is with Jamal in his apartment and he give, gets out of the lap uh, on the laptop, but the typewriters, and he sits down and he starts writing. And he's like, What are you doing? He's like, I'm writing as you will when you start typing those keys. And Jamal's like, But don't you think you got to think about that first? What you want to write about first? And he's like, No, no, no. Writing, thinking comes later. Right now, the most important thing to writing is to write. Then there was something, then there was Roger Scruton. And you and I have talked a great deal about Roger Scruton. Yeah. And he said in his book, Gentle Regrets, his biography, his autobiography. He said that he was never a very good writer as a kid, but he one day decided that he wanted to develop an interest in writing. So what he did was he would sit down and for an hour a day, he would just write. Wow. He would just take that time and focus on writing, nothing but writing. And I'm like, well, you know, um, I don't have an hour a day, but I can give 20 hours a day, 20 minutes a day. 20 minutes a day. So I started. 20 hours a day would be quite, quite intense. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's, uh, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, but 20 minutes. Four hours to sleep. Just four hours. Sorry. <laughs> hey, who has that? Because I got that kind of time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I started doing that. And I also had a, and then one day I wake up and I start writing and I look at the clock and it's been five hours. I'm like, wow. I've been wow. And something else is that at the time I had a relationship with a girl who didn't exactly end well, but she inspired me to write too. And she's like, you should write and I'll totally be your editor. I'm like, cool. So I started writing and she was a major inspiration for me there, but we broke up. And so I had to start editing stuff on my own, seeing what was good and what worked and what didn't. It's amazing. So it's really interesting. I think like a big takeaway from that you, you read that somebody should, you're talking about Roger Scruton, right an hour a day, and you recognize that you didn't have that. But this is, again, this you're such an action taker. It's just, this is something I, I think more people should be like this. It's really impressive. You're like, I don't have an hour a day, so I'm going to do 20 minutes. I'm going to do what I can. And then one day you were writing five hours. So you see where that leads. It's, it's about doing. It's about taking the action and eventually you know, you get much closer where you want to be, uh, if not where you want to be. So that's a, I, I, that really stuck out for me. I think that's really impressive. You, you didn't have any kind of, oh, I think there are a lot of people who might say, oh, well, I don't have an hour a day. Okay. I, I can't do this. <laughs> I have 20 well, minutes I, a day. Well, the thing was, was I used to be in the Navy and in the Navy, I was so uptight about 
And I think a big problem is that people are so afraid of failure. Mm-hmm. And they're worried that, oh, what if my first draft isn't any good? That's why it's called a draft. <laughs> it's not supposed to be good. But, and as a result, I was in the Navy at the time and I was so uptight about being the best sailor that I could be that I was afraid of failure. And as such, I kind of limited myself to failing and learning from my failures. And I was so focused on making sure that I got everything right the first time okay. that instead of just learning by trial and error, I just went through and was like, uh, I got to make sure I studied everything down to a T and I know everything. And because you're so focused on that, you kind of push everything else out of the way and you mm-hmm. kind of forget about that. The most important thing to doing is to go and do it. If you're always focusing on what you can't do or can't accomplish now, yeah. you're never going to be able to get there. And that's another thing that I've noticed is a lot of people are so focused. And I, I talk a lot about this with some of my friends about culture and what's going on with Black Lives Matter and everything, not bring, meaning to bring politics into it. But they're taking a statement of fact and distorting because they are so obsessed with the past that as all they see. They only see the negative aspects about the past instead of making moves to build a bigger and brighter future. Yeah, I, I think that's really profound. I think that's really true. And I know you said you, you're, you said, I don't want to bring politics into it. I think that culture is really important. Um, you know, we are cultural beings. And uh, I, I think the more you dive into kind of the history of culture, we we start to see that very little of culture is actually organic. A lot of culture has been uh, conditionally shaped and engineered. And I, that is uh, when you're that, that can be a uh, victim inducing because people don't always recognize that, you know, <laughs> um, not just because that might be part of the intention sometimes. Um, but it's also, I think it makes you when you are powerless, because as I was saying, part of the thing about culture is that you have a visceral emotional response to it, to art. You, you know, when you hear a beautiful piece of music, you see an incredible painting, you watch a movie that moves you, you read, a, you know, an amazing book, you have this experience that cannot be cannot always be explained in words, you know, there's, you can write about it and you can talk about it, but there is a visceral, guttural, emotional, subconscious response that you have. And so that is the power of art and art does shape a lot of our culture. And I think throughout the years, we've seen that it doesn't always have the most positive impact on our culture and because politics is downstream from the culture that influence our political milieu and I think some of the major issues in our society today are really not so much about politics politics is the reflection of that but they are cultural crises uh you know they're cultural and moral crises and I think that you know art has the power to influence that you know, and to be a part of improving that. So well, Absolutely. And everything, like you said, is a process. And I think that in regards to your statement about culture and art, anything could be considered art. Art is a very subjective term. However, I tend to want art that inspires me and 
lifts me, it makes me want to do better. For instance, I have become a lover of Rudyard Kipling. I love <laughs> Rudyard Kipling. If is my favorite poem. If I actually just ordered a frame of that because I love it so much. Yeah, like my childhood favorite poem, yeah. You see, and another one of my favorite poems is Invictus by William Ernest Henley. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. Out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from bullet hole, I think whatever God's would be for my powerful soul. And I felt clutch of sex. And the clutch of circumstance, I'm not going to cry aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but I'm bowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears, and the horror of the shape. The menace of the earth's finds, and she'll find me in her grave. It matters not how straight the gate, in charge of punishment, the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And the problem, the problem nowadays is that my generation in particular, many of them are so self-absorbed that they lose the value and the they only see, and this is very significant, but they only see little moments versus the whole picture. And as such, that little moment consumes their whole worldview. Yeah. And we see that in the art, especially. And one of my favorite modern day artists, and, I, and he's underrated, and I am very glad that he is, because it makes his music that much more valuable is NF. Okay. And he wrote I know who he is. I'm not that familiar with his music though. Yeah. So so he's a rapper. He's a yeah, rapper. Yeah. And he raps yeah. about some intense emotional stuff. But the whole but every single one of his albums is basically like telling a story and talk and you see his growth in each album. And <clears throat> one of his earliest songs in his first album which is called Mansions, he wrote a song called Paralyzed. And in it, he has some very profound words, and he says, I'm paralyzed. I'm lost, and it's killing me. Where is the real me? And I feel like as he begins to realize that his music has helped people, he becomes less absorbed, and he heals more. And I think that the problem is that nowadays, like I said, my generation is very self-centered and very selfish. And we're all about instant gratification. We got Amazon for that very reason. <laughs> we want free college for that very reason. My generation's guilty of that too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think every, every generation plays a part in that, right? Yeah. But it, it, it's become especially virulent in my generation. And I think the problem is, is I'm going to college and I'm going to college because the military is paying for my school. That's only after I did my time and I served. Um, the problem is, is that I have that far too many people are just wanting to go to college because it's what's expected of them instead of doing what they dream. And I think the biggest problem is that people have dreams and society is like, well, you're never going to accomplish those dreams. And as such, those dreams are killed and people delve into a victim mentality of like, oh, well, I could have done X, Y, and Z, but I never had A, B, and C to support me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really, really true. And I, I do think that's a cultural phenomenon. Uh, you know, they, they've uh, put victimhood up on a, a pedestal. I can't remember who it was who said it, and I thought it was so genius. They were talking about like the, the victimhood Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's become a new religion. Yeah, 
Exactly. And what happened to people wanting to, uh, you know, supersede expectations to prove things to themselves to be better than they were yesterday? You know, one of my one of my favorite heroes on your point is uh, Booker T. Washington. Have you ever read Up From Slavery? Have have I ever read? Have you ever read Up From Slavery? I haven't. No. Oh, my gosh. That is such a great book. Everyone's got to read it. Because Booker T. Washington was a young black man who was born into slavery in the South. And as such, he was denied the opportunity to gain an education. But he knew how to work, and he worked hard. And when they did earn their freedom, he decided one day that, hey, I want to learn how to read. So he walked. 500 miles to a school that was founded by a former Civil War general who called the Hampton School. Mm -hmm. And he didn't have any money. He had had a bad appearance because he didn't have any clothes that were suitable for school. He knocked on the door and the woman who saw him was like, "Ah, I'm not sure if he's really interested in this. So she took him aside and she gave him a room and she said, Ted, tell you what, if you can sweep this room well, We'll let you stay here. We'll teach you. So he swept that room well, and he got into the school, and he taught, and he learned how to read. He became a teacher. He became a writer. He became an orator, and he became one of the founders of the Tuskegee Institute. Amazing. I do know his story. I haven't read this. Yes, his story is amazing. You got to read up from slavery. And I think that if more people had the mentality of, hey, I was born with disadvantages, that some people... I may not have been born with all the advantages that others may have, but I have my own personal advantages. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I love that. And and don't be afraid of failure. Failure is an intrinsic part of life. And if people got over and realized that failure is not the end, but merely a new learn, a new step in, towards success. Totally. Yeah. Didn't Churchill say that uh, <laughs> success is going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm? Yeah. So I'm curious your thoughts on uh, heroism in uh, in stories, because I think over the past several generations, we've seen a rise of the anti-hero in a lot of movies and books and television shows. What are your thoughts on that? So I do enjoy anti-heroes. I do enjoy that. I'll be lying if I said I didn't enjoy anti-heroes. I think that there is a great deal more depth to them than heroes. But at the same time, heroes give us something to aspire to. They are inspirational and aspirational for that very reason. And if we don't have heroes, then we see things through the lens of only the anti-hero. We become jaded, we become negative, and we become disenfranchised with how things are in the world. Um, For instance, Tyrannus, so the way I want to try and change things, how I want to start Tyrannus is I want him to start off very much as an anti-hero who gradually over time evolves into a hero. Because I believe in redemption, A, and B, if you learn to look at things with a new gaze and hope, you come to realize that not all heroes have to be amazingly attractive or good looking or strong as is typical with Marvel and superheroes. Right. And 
one of my favorites has to be uh, Tony Stark in the last Avengers movies. Because you literally see the growth from becoming a self-centered person who's doing these things only to build up his ego. Mm-hmm. To being someone who literally gave up his life for everyone else. Because he realized, hey, you know what? I've got a daughter and I'm willing to sacrifice everything so she can grow up and not live in fear. Yeah. There's nobility in that. And without nobility, there is no beauty. I think that's so true. That's so true. And I think there's a loss of beauty in certainly we see it in art. We see it, I think, yeah. (laughs) You know, what what are your thoughts? No, no, I'm very much the same way. I'm very much like Rogers. I'm not a big fan of modern day art because a lot of modern day art looks at things from a negative view and it doesn't aspire. And Robert, Roger Scruton said that art is supposed to make us aspire and feel divine. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why the architecture of the Renaissance, by the art of the Renaissance, still stands. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, beauty is supposed to be inspiring and it is supposed to, it's supposed to be captivating and draw you in and make you want to aspire. So it, it, it's an interactive engagement. Um, and I think, exactly. I, I think that's one of the most important aspects of it is that it, it stirs a striving in people. And I, I think we're seeing a lot of art that is much more uh, destructionist, um, and <laughs> you know it, it, it is Art, songs movies literature everything yeah yeah so then that that's engaging as well only it uh does not inspire <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't inspire uh excellence um or striving or yeah but i think there's a um a comfort that people feel in debasement and so some of the art has taken on more of that kind of a nature. No, absolutely. I completely agree. And it's interesting, as I see from, as I look at these things, I'm currently in school right now. And I see something, an interesting pattern amongst people who are so derogatory towards ancient art. They aren't producing anything worthwhile in the process uh, to replace mm-hmm. that. Right. I mean, if they were an artist who made something absolutely incredibly beautiful and they replaced it if they replaced the the um uh, the coliseum or the paintings on the sistine chapel with some other form and some other building someplace and that's an entirely different thing and like i'm kind of critical of um, uh, Raphael's paintings because of x y and z and because based off my own experience look at this but nowadays they're so quick to degrade and destroy and deride anyone who deigns to think for themselves or create something out of their own imagination. Or if their character or if characters in their movies are break the norm. Right. For instance, I am a, I'm currently in English. I'm currently in college, like I said, I'm in my second semester. And in my English class, I'm writing a paper on villains. Because I'll be honest with you, I've always been more fascinated by villains and their development versus heroes. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons why I feel like I enjoy anti-villains more is because 
anti-villains have a little bit more of a darker side to them and they fully recognize their darker side and they give into it. Whereas villains, they have a much more interesting story. And one of my favorite villains has to be um, uh, Thrawn. Well, not Thrawn. Well, Thrawn, yes. But also Darth Vader. (laughs) Yeah. Because Darth Vader had a I don't think you're alone in that one, yeah. (laughs) You like Darth Vader too? I do, yeah. I love growing up. I I do too. And it's so sad seeing what Disney has done to it. Yeah. That is a major sad thing in life. They made they had so much potential with the legends. They could have just taken stuff from legends yeah. and made the new trilogy off of that and then expanded from there, but instead of like, mm, no. <laughs> but you done messed up. Yeah, I, w- I would agree. What do you think, th- why do you think there is such a rise of the anti-hero, the, um, you know, glorifying the villain? I, I think we see a lot of that. That's not that's not quite the same thing as an anti-hero. But that's a glorification of villains, um, and we see it in uh, you know blatant glorification of criminals. We see that in a lot of entertainment mediums. Yeah. Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I would have to say that right off the top of my head, I don't know, but. If I had to say something, I would say it's because people have become so, have come to view the world in such a negative light mm-hmm. and view themselves in such a negative light mm-hmm. that villains are the only way that they are able to express themselves. So like a relatability type of thing? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that is part of it. Um, I, I think there is an element of a just, you know, it's kind of like the postmodern destructionism, where if we glorify the villains, then th- instead of aspiring to be like heroes, people want to be like these villains and these criminals. Um, you know, we saw a lot of that with the, the thing come to my mind, just that, you know, The Sopranos was really popular, um, you know, and uh, I remember like a lot of people finding that was really trendy and it was cool to be you know, uh, a mobster and, uh, you know, the reality is they're, they're criminals that, that doesn't mean there aren't some great people, but you know, it's not, it's not aspirational to be a criminal and to glorify this lifestyle, uh, I think is definitely problematic and it it does seem, yeah, I don't think it has a good outcome. And I, I wonder about the intentionality of it. No, I agree. I don't think it has a good outcome either. And we're no longer going just from glorifying of villains to the actual embracing of that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're seeing across the country calls for defunding the police. And I keep bringing in politics. I don't mean to, but I'm a, that has a very big role. People are so have embraced this idea of, oh, well, we're all villains. So why don't we might as well just give into our worst. I'm a, intention that our worst vices and that's that's a major problem because upon the death of morality is the death of all heroes and if no one is moral or good then evil will abound yep yeah exactly i i that is very well said i i think that i very much align with that i agree <laughs> um and i i think and i i know you keep saying i don't want to bring 
I, and it's totally fine too. I do think that there is such a tie and, you know, this isn't about the uh, nuances or the specifics of politics necessarily, but it, how much of the culture shapes the uh, political instances that we witness, you know, I don't think, and this is an interesting question. You can tell me your thoughts on this. Um, I, I think it's interesting, but I'd love to hear your thoughts is something like Black Lives Matter and the destruction that we saw, you know, like last the last summer, you know, um, what, summer. yeah, right. <laughs> um, like, do you think that without the influence of some of the cultural influences that we have witnessed over the past uh, several years and generations you know, building up to this, do you think that something like that would have been could happen and certainly could be accepted. You know, it was pretty tolerated. I think people did not fight back quite the way you would have expected, or at least I would have expected. Do you no, think no. that was an influence of cultural? So I very much so, very much so. I think that the problem is that, like you said, we used to glorify criminals, you know, Scarface, um, uh, Godfather, and um, the Joker, and I mean, great examples, great examples, right? And I think that those being pushed out there in a way like they were by the media, and not to mention, we're always the bad guys in a lot of the TV shows and the cop shows. Is that? <laughs> yep. Um, uh, it, they usually portray them as black people, which mm -hmm. is a horrible thing. Because I have a roommate who he's in a going to be getting married and to his girlfriend and he has a little girl mm -hmm. and he didn't know that it was his little girl at first but he stepped up owned that mistake and is now getting ready to marry the woman who was the mother of his daughter mm -hmm. the majority of black people aren't what the media portrays them to be. of course and it's a shame that because of the culture inculcating and saying this is what it is. This is what it is. This is what it is. This is how Americans will always see as a social, as such, that has become ingrained in their own mind, especially since the media targets minority communities, especially hard. Yeah. Which is why we see people like Thomas Sowell not getting the name recognition he deserves, which is why we see people like Glenn Lowry not seeing the name recognition he deserves, John McWhorter. Tom, I'm a Booker T. Washington, Frederick Douglass. I mean, everyone knows who Frederick Douglass is, but yeah. no one's actually taking the time to listen to what they have to say and learning from their experiences. Right, or to do uh, entertainment portrayals of them in a positive light, right? Absolutely. Uh, I, mean, I, I mean, I enjoy the movie, like him, uh, Hidden Figures. That is a more accurate representation of um, black people, I think. I'm a, I'm a. Remember the Titans? Yeah. That coach was amazing. Denzel Washington was. And Denzel Washington is fantastic. You know, he's just he's awesome. He's a great actor. He's a, yeah, he's awesome. All around human being. He's yeah, a, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he's. Um, Colin Powell is another representation of that. Condoleezza Rice. There are so many examples of them not being what the media portrays them to be. 
because the media is so intent on having someone to be the victim. Mm -hmm. They do everything in the power to keep grinding in that message, ramming in that message that you will never be, you will never be seen as anything other than uh, subpar trash. Right. And they do that to create a victim because they, they, the narrative is that there's a victim. So somebody else must be the perpetrator. And then you have your oppressed oppressor, you know, Hegelian dialectic, which fits very nicely into their divide and conquer strategy. Exactly. Well, another interesting thing is that most of the demons that I've seen in my own personal life have been self-created. I think that's a big problem for everyone. Ultimately, the only person that gets in our way is ourselves. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little more more about that. What, What do you mean? Yeah, so you say you think you've seen that that you think that the person who gets in the way is themselves, and how how do you think that that's uh, related to uh, the culture currently? So I I think the pro- so in my own personal experience, I was as I mentioned earlier about my experience in the Navy, I was so obsessed with succeeding that I ultimately failed <clears throat> because I wanted to get everything right the first time. Right, and there is a fear of failure. Sure, and that's, that's a very normal human fear. Exactly. Yeah. It's, if you don't, and have it's not that, necessarily you know, an unhealthy thing to want to. No, want no, to I'm not. I'm not yeah, saying yeah. it is, but yeah. When that fear of failure becomes an obsession, right? Then that's a danger. Sure. And right now, the media and many of the major political figures of today's day and age are pushing an environment of fear. Yeah. And that if you dare to try and do something that might uplift not just yourself, but other people, mm-hmm. then that automatically makes you an enemy and a sellout to what the media wants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. <coughs> very much so. Um, but I think this notion of uh, people... Uh, you know, being kind of their their own enemy is a really interesting concept. I mean, I think it's a, I do think on some level it's intrinsic to human nature. Uh, you know, that is part of the human plight. We, we are, we have humility, we have fear, we have, uh, um, you know, all these things where we, that can drive us to sabotage ourselves um, and to get in our own way. Um, but I do think that there is also a, a cultural messaging that has been instilled in people to uh, think that they, yeah, I, I think you had kind of alluded to it before that that people are not capable of achieving things, and that you know that they, they are victim, and therefore, uh, and that kind of I think that voice gets into people's heads and subconsciously. I don't know if they're aware of it, and. Then when even when they start to achieve their own success, they're sabotaging it because they've been told they can't. They've been told they shouldn't. Um, and I think there is that that's kind of the flip side of it, too, is there is shaming. Uh, so there are people who, you know, they don't want to achieve that kind of success because they feel somehow that makes them a bad person. Right. Because then they become part of the oppressor category. They're, they're now not the victim. They're the perpetrator. And I think there are people who sabotage themselves as a result of that without even being aware of it. I think there is a subconscious messaging that occurs and it's pretty tragic. And that's not to say that human beings don't have 
I mean, we, we all have that in, in us anyway. We're not, you know, we, none of us think that, or very few of us, uh, barring some psychological pathology, think that we're infallible and think that, you know, we can, nothing we touch is ever going to be wrong, you know. Um, most of us, you know, think that if we're, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to have errors and we, we might fail. Um, but this notion of getting in our own way, um, I, I think that is quite prevalent and that I'm not so sure that there isn't a cultural aspect to that. So I don't think that it is a cultural aspect, but I do think it is more from a, a psychological one. Mm-hmm. And I think that culturally wise, people push the victimhood mentality very mm-hmm. aggressively and very hard. Right. But from a psychologically speaking, for myself, and I can only speak for myself, mm-hmm. what I've observed, but sure. for myself, I kept getting my own opportunities to succeed because I wanted something. And I became so blinded by what I wanted and because I thought that I could achieve that, mm-hmm. that I saw other avenues were shut off to me and I wasn't able, and I refused to try them because I was afraid I would fail. So mm-hmm. I shot for my goal and my goal for most of my life was to be in the military and all through my high school years when I started I want to be in the military maybe I could be a lawyer maybe I could be a surgeon maybe I, you know, I don't want to be a surgeon I don't do blood and guts um, I thought maybe I could do um, uh, anything I thought maybe I could try anything but I'm like no no I got to be in the military got to be in the military got to be in the military besides there's an opportunity that I could fail in those well Turns out I joined the military and I realized this is nothing like I dreamt it would be. And I think that's another problem that feeds into that is that reality is a real kick in the nuts. Yeah. Of course, language. Reality is very different from what we imagine it might be. No, no, it is. And my whole life, I've read books on the military. I've read books about what it was like in war, what it was like growing up and developing and changing throughout the military and how it's changed over time. And as such, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to get in. I'm ready to be the best I can be. I'm ready to succeed. And I came in fully with the intention of succeeding. But when I hit my first major roadblock, I automatically set up like a stealth defense mechanism, like, you're a failure. Interesting. going to succeed. And as such, that affected the rest of my naval career. I mean, I got out with an honorable discharge. I don't want people thinking that I was like such a piss poor guy that they're like, oh, you're probably going to get No, I, I, I did my job and I did the job the best I could, but I think I limited myself in achieving more and doing more and being better and being the best me because I was so caught up in my own personal failures. Interesting. What, when you were saying that you read so many books about the military and you had all these kind of visions of what it would be, what was the biggest shock to you about how different the reality was? So just right now, looking at my pile, I got a biography about uh, Douglas MacArthur, George Marshall, Patton, um, uh, Zukov, Nimitz, just right there in front of me, right here, a little pile. A lot of books on and you can have a really high stuff. stack of books, yeah. <laughs> Dude, red pile. I got more books, I got a bunch over here and over here. <laughs> but, um, 
I think that the biggest thing was I came in with the idea of people in the military were better than the average person. Mm. That was a very arrogant, egotistical, and wrong way of approaching things. But when I came in, I came to the realization that people who join are just people. Mm-hmm. Some with different strengths, some with different talents, some who like certain things and don't like certain things. Mm-hmm. And I, that was the biggest shock for me. <laughs> because I thought everyone's going to be so appetite and so, so focused on a mission that they're never that we're going to get everything done. We're going to be beast, absolute beast. And then I get in and realize that people are people. Yep. No matter what industry you put them in, they're always going to want to do something on the side. Totally. Always going to want to take the time to enjoy themselves. And if you don't find the smallest little, and if you don't take joy in the small things, and if you don't enjoy yourself, then ultimately you're never going to succeed because you're always going to be focused on the negative. And wow. that for me was very eye-opening. Yeah, that, that's very profound. And I, I think uh, you are very fortunate that at such a young age that that was an epiphany for you. Um, you I think a lot of people go through life and never realize that. So <laughs> what a little arrogant shit I was before I joined the military. Yeah, so this is the other thing uh, that I really respect about you is that you are so willing to own your mistakes and be open and be curious and to learn and grow from your mistakes or from when you're wrong. Um, this is a quality that I, I really wish more people had. And it's one of the things that makes working with you such a pleasure. Not that you, you don't like make mistakes very often, but that wasn't the point. But, you know, you're very quick to say, you know, this is how I used to think. And I, I realized I was wrong. And, you know, discuss that, that journey and that discovery process and to, uh, you know, to change your perspective and to, or to investigate it and learn from it. And I think that that is something that uh, is really valuable. I think it will really serve you in life. I think it'll, yeah, I think it's a good lesson for others to hear. So Thank you. you're welcome. You're welcome. So that's, so that's what you learned. You learned that you, you were an arrogant uh, twin. <laughs> I was a very arrogant twin. I look back at my days, I'm just like, I didn't know much then, and I still don't know much now, but I'm on the process of learning more as I get older. And I think yeah. you should always take the time to learn and read more about everything. For instance, I, I'm a conservative. I make no bones about the fact that I'm very openly and very proud to be a conservative. Amazing. But I've read Karl's Marx. I've read, I read Das Kapital back in high school. Mm-hmm. I can't say I remember much. I remember just being like, uh, and then recently I read I'm a market. People attempted economic theory. <laughs> <laughs> and then I read I'm a, the Communist Manifesto. I've read I'm a, one of my favorite people to read about and read is uh, Christopher Hitchens. I watch Christopher. I'm very much a person of faith. I love my faith. I try to say, and I try to be the best person I can be. Not perfect, but I'm a. I enjoy reading Christopher Hitchens, and Christopher Hitchens was one of the four horsemen of atheism. Mm-hmm. And he and many of the other atheists, of those atheists, are very much anti-religion. But I enjoy listening to them and seeing what they have to say. And I'm not saying this to toot my own horn, but it's to say that 
you never know what you know until you actually take the time to explore and see and understand things. Mm -hmm. If you close your mind to what is available, then you'll never be able to achieve anything more than what you have in front of you. Yeah, also so profound. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, very true. <laughs> That's very, very true. So what are some of the other... Uh, I'm curious about the influences that drove you and that motivated you. And also writing a book is a long process and it took you quite a few years. So I, are, were there moments where you were frustrated, where you lost your train of thought, where you, uh, you know, kind of, you know, thought about giving up on the process or had changed, you know, wanted to completely pivot from what you originally had set out to do? Yes to all of those. <laughs> yes to all of those. So anyone who does write knows the fact that you will hit writer's block. And Courtney, you and I both write articles for Truth Matters. And we know how frustrating it is to sometimes frame on the, our articles and it present information to people in a way that they can understand it. It's easy to understand and it's easy to grasp. For sure. For sure. The challenge. It, it is a challenge. And so very often times it's hard to just, so it's easy to hit writer's block. And I ran into that many times while I was writing my book. There were some chapters that I went through like five drafts before I finally decided that's good. I like that. Just recently I was writing the prologue for book two. And as I was writing it, I went through like four different ways to open up the chapter mm -hmm. where I'm like, okay, I like this way. <laughs> and that's okay. That's all good. Uh, but in regards to inspiration. Um, Before you get to the inspiration, what did you do when you felt stuck? What, what helped you to pick yourself up and keep going? I tried a new route. I tried several different routes. Okay tried several different approaches, just like, hey, maybe this will work. No, maybe this will work. No, how about this? And that, yes, I like that one. You, you just got to be willing to try and test an experiment. And if you want to write, then you got to be willing to see what works and what feels like your story. Because you want your story to be consistent. Yeah. And you want to make sure that your characters actually, that the timeline actually lines up. For instance, I have a little notebook right here that is filled with that doesn't have a lot of notes, but it's got several pages of things to make sure I understand the continuity and understand my own characters. Amazing. All right. Tell me about the influences. And then I have one more question for you that's tied to this. Um, but it's a, it's about the process and, you know, the finding character. You were just talking about the notebook that you have and how do you get inside the mind of the character and hone them and create them and and yeah what influences inspire those yeah all right so to <laughs> in regards to influences um i am a diehard fan of jrr tolkien and c.s lewis jr say, say it again jrr tolkien jrr tolkien the creator of the lord of the rings universe and I'm, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not hearing you. Creative the what? The Lord of the Rings universe. Middle oh, Earth. yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. sorry. Was my yep. Yeah. I, I'm struggling a little bit. So I don't know if you want to move it closer or. Yeah. Is that better? 
It might be. Yeah, we'll try again. Okay. So C.S. Lewis and J.R. are told for some of my earliest inspirations. We're actually some of the more serious inspirations. But growing up, I always loved the story of the stories that were told in Star Wars. Yeah. And I read many of the extended universe books. And I loved reading those and I built on those. And so George Lucas, J.R.R. Tolkien, and C.S. Lewis, because they are all able to tell a story in a different way. George Lucas was very much a more visual person. Mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis was much more a feelings person. And you see that in how he writes in the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah. Whereas J.R.R. Tolkien was more of a, well, everything person. <laughs> The way he describes so many of the books is very, very in-depth and in-touch. And ultimately, the early inspiration was just wanting to tell a story as a kid. I love telling stories, and I had a very active imagination, still do, but particularly so as a kid, and I would just want to get up and tell stories to family and friends about what was going on. And they've gradually evolved into what it is now. And thank you, what? Really involved and it, with, and it evolved into the story that I have now. Right. And regarding your question <clears throat> about getting inside the heads of my characters, yes. So for Tyronis, Tyronis is fairly easy Ty because a lot of what Tyronis is, I kind of view it. It's kind of autobiographical in a way. I didn't realize that as I was writing it, but I'm like, you know, I'm kind of. This. <laughs> I should probably change some stuff. <laughs> um, so Tyronis was very much getting inside my own head and dealing with many of my own emotions. Malchus, on the other hand, I had to kind of go an entirely opposite route. Because mm. Malchus is the opposite of Tyronis. Tyronis is very stern, kind of angry, grumpy looking all the time. Not a lot of people like him. Malchus is a fun person. He enjoys a good laugh. He enjoys ripping people. And um, he's someone who's very good with women. And he is fun to be around. And women enjoy being around him and talking to him. And then you got Ryer. So I had to go completely opposite route with Malcolm's because I'm like, okay, how do I do this? And another really weird thing that I'm probably weird you out and if you don't want to be my partner anymore I totally understand but I actually have conversations with my characters yeah no that, that doesn't weird me out at all I mean I I've written and I've I've done that as well yeah yeah no absolutely you gotta have conversations with the characters and sometimes you gotta play it think about how the scenario plays out and how else are you gonna write dialogue exactly yeah and make the dialogue realistic because a lot of people do dialogue and they're like this is boring. Yep. Okay. Well, <laughs> here's the meat. Right. There's no meat in that conversation. You got to be like, oh man, this is so boring. I know, right? The, the, the guy is talking for hours and he hasn't said anything worthwhile. Seriously. Right. Maybe we should go do something. Right. Let's go to, let's go out and do something. Let's, let's get out of here. This is a waste of money and time. People have conversations, and sometimes people may have conversations that, well, this is boring, and that's all fair and well, but people, when you're telling a story, you want the story to be more interactive, and you want people to enjoy what is being said. Sure. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Very cool. So do you ever find like you feel those sounds like certain characters are, you know, pretty come pretty easily and you feel like you know them already. Um, and do you ever feel like disconnected from a character and you're not sure how to continue to write them? And <laughs> so <laughs> just a little context. I grew up with these characters and they mm-hmm. evolved. They're my babies. So I've kind of learned how to see how. And that's a weird way of saying it, but I've kind of come to see how my babies act. Mm-hmm. I see their patterns. I've come to see their thought processes. I understand the experiences that they went through in their lives. Right. And as such, it gives me a greater in-depth detail. And I've been doing this for 17 years. I've been developing this story. A long time. <laughs> it is a long time. And so it's given me most of your life. But most yeah. Of my life, yeah. I'm 24 yeah. now. Right. But it's given me an opportunity to connect with the characters in a way that I don't think that a lot of people that for me, I shouldn't talk of in general, but for me personally, it's been very entertaining. Mm-hmm. I'm so I have two questions out of that. But one is if you were to write a story that's totally unrelated and now you have to come up with all these new characters what would <laughs> look on your face um yeah so what would that process be like and you know do you think is that because you would you have to draw upon new kind of strategies to do that um we'll just start with that question that's that's a good question that's a good question so i've actually thought about what i want to write after this after Ooh. i finish the series it, it can't be connected to the Tamarian universe at all right right oh boy so I thought about doing one story um, uh, where, have you ever seen The Reign of Fire? I don't think so, no. Matthew McConaughey, Gerard Butler, and Christian Bale. It's one of their lesser known movies, but basically they discover dragons in, okay. modern day, in the modern day world. Okay. And the dragons come up and they wipe out huge swaths of the human population. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I didn't realize that that was an actual idea or movie until a friend pointed that out to me. I'm like, what? <laughs> Basically, um, uh, one story that I thought about doing was having a, basically, all the major wars that we know about in history are cover-ups for dragons and humans fighting. Ooh. And the reason why the Black Plague happened isn't because of the disease, but because there was a huge monster army of humans versus all the dragons, they managed to get all the dragons in one place. There was once every like thousand years, the dragons gather in one place and the humans attacked. And as a result, they annihilated all but a hundred of the dragons in the world. And the dragons were flew away. The surviving dragons flew away and relocated onto um, uh, the Bermuda Triangle and using their magic, they'd like, I'm like, use that to keep themselves hidden from humanity. Wow. I think that could be super cool. <laughs> that could be really fun. So if you have these, these ideas, now you have to come up with all new characters. What would be the creative process for that? Because now it's not, these aren't characters that you've been, you know, getting to know since you were seven. 
Right, and that's a really interesting question. But I would have to say that you got you got to contemplate the history of the general just of the story. Mm-hmm. For instance, if you were to write a story from the dragon's perspective, you got to write and see how they would come to view humans mm-hmm. after that. Right. They probably wouldn't be very forgiving of humanity. They'd probably be like, well, let's burn them. <laughs> <laughs> and humans yeah. up to this point tend to think that dragons are myths. Yeah, most of us do. <laughs> and so if you were writing a story about humans dis- discovering for themselves that, hey, dragons are real, um, crap, they would probably be overwhelmed with fear. Mm, yeah. True. Fear or awe. There's probably not going to be an in-between. Mm, yeah, probably not. Might be a bit of both. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. So you would really lo- you look from the psychological perspective and allow that to develop the character organically. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's the best way to write a story. If you try and force a character into a specific way or a specific line, train of thought, it doesn't feel natural and it doesn't flow. Right. And another thing to consider is be open to the introduction of new characters that you previously had never thought about. Mm-hmm. Right. For instance... Briar was a character who didn't exist until I actually started writing. Oh, wow. Okay. And were there any characters that got cut out in the process? Um, there were a few. Okay. But there are some characters that are introduced. And I'm a, one of the characters that is, in my own personal opinion, the most terrifying villain uh-huh. in, this, in the series. Yeah. Um, uh, he actually kind of just evolved too interesting is it hard for you to so there were some characters you had to let go of is that a is that difficult i know some writers get very it's very precious so it's hard to let go of things in some ways yes in some ways yes but sometimes those characters that you originally wanted to make sometimes they evolve into another character Mm. or you see their attributes be absorbed into another character. For instance, Tyrannus was originally supposed to be called Rayswan. Oh, okay. But um, that changed and he became Tyrannus. And what was the reason for that? I thought, so I thought that the part of it was more interesting because Rayswan was very much like Tyrannus too. He was a half-blood. Only difference is that he was not a half blood of noble birth, and he wasn't a sh- and he wasn't a Tolkrif. Mm-hmm. Rather, he was a Zenestian, and a Zenestian is another group of humanoid, like another alien humanoid race that is arch enemies with the Temerians. <clears throat> and he became a half blood from a Temerian and a half blood from a Zenestian. But in order to move the story along and to make things more interesting and to involve here on Earth, I thought maybe it should be focused more on a half-blood, half-blood Tolkrafe here on Earth and focus more here on Earth. Yeah. Yeah. It, it sounds like that was probably a good direction to go in. <laughs> I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Very awesome. 
I don't remember what my other question was. That was the, the two part of it. Um, but it was something about the, the process of when you get stuck. So in regards to the process of just getting stuck, um, uh, sometimes you have to sit back. When you do get stuck, sometimes the thing, the thing I do is I typically just like, I'm stuck, just take mm -hmm. a step back. Yeah. Take a step back, go to the gym, go out and grab a bite to eat, watch a movie. And another interesting thing is I get a lot of inspiration from movies and books. So oh, that's that, yeah, the inspiration, yeah. Yeah, so don't be afraid to derive inspiration from movies and books. And I, and one of the things that have really inspired me in writing this is I love Celtic music. For instance, Celtic women, I'm a fan. That's going to sound really weird hearing a 24-year-old guy talking about how he likes Celtic women. But I love the songs and I love the, the nature of the songs and how they're told and how they're sung because it's almost like it's almost mythical in a way. Yeah, totally. I can see that. Yeah. And like I said, the Temerian universe is very much a sci-fi universe, but there's elements of it to it that are fantastical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And so why not incorporate songs from a people that are known for the development and creation of like fairies? Oh. And you also got the Greeks. Mm -hmm. And why not listen to them and draw inspiration from them? Yeah, absolutely. And for instance, creation myths. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why not draw inspiration from creation myths? Why limit yourself to being like, okay, I'm just going to try and do things on my own. Why reinvent the wheel when there, there's been so much great wheels made pri previously? <laughs> exactly. You can improve upon them. Yeah. Draw from draw upon the greats. No, I think that's super smart. Super smart. Draw upon the greats and try and make your own great story. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is super awesome. Do you have anything else you want to add and leave people with? And um, I would say that if you're looking at getting into writing, just write. Devote a little bit of time to yourself every day where you just sit down, you have you can listen to music in the background or not at all. Depends on how you choose to write. Yeah. But just sit down and write your story. And don't be afraid if it doesn't come out the way you want it to the first time. Right. No, that's great advice. What would you say is the, the biggest thing that you have learned and the biggest gift that you have received in this process? That's a really good question. <laughs> the biggest thing I've learned and the biggest gift I've received. Um, so learned, I learned how to write in a way that I hope is entertaining to people. Mm -hmm. They will find it entertaining. And I received, I would have to say, is my partnership with you and Danita. As a part of the, as a process of writing the- Yeah, as a process of writing. If I hadn't told you that I enjoyed writing and that you told me that you'd gotten a few articles published out of a few places, I would have probably never been like, well, hey, maybe there's something to this. Wow. You know, I, I don't know that I ever really realized that. That's really cool. That's super cool. Thank you for sharing that. 
Yeah. I love that. I love seeing where like, you know, one thing leads to next and so rarely in life is it what we expect. You know, I think we often have these, we have these goals, we have these visions, we attempt things. And I I know from a lot of my uh, experiences and my failures, there's, you know, I often at the time (laughs) I'm like, I worked so hard. Why didn't that work out the way I wanted it? And then, but then I realized that a lot of the the things that I'm I'm doing now would never have come to fruition if it weren't for those past experiences. And those past experiences didn't work out because actually something better came along. And you know that's not to undermine some of those past experiences that may have been really hard at the time or the failures that may not have been so pleasant to endure or the you know those hard lessons that nobody really wants to learn. Um, but the reward of picking yourself up and keep going and keep working towards things. And then the other things that come together are just, they really are kind of magical. So yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Well, tell everyone where they can find you. (laughs) So you guys can follow me on Facebook. I'm just Ethan. Hey, I'm on getter Ethan seven, six, and I'm on Twitter at J E H. Hey, that's my, First three of my initials, Jonathan, Ethan, Hay. But I go by Ethan because my dad's name is Jonathan. So J-E-H-A on Twitter. Um, I don't, I'm not a big social media guy, but if you do have questions or if you want to reach out to me, just reach out to me there. Can't promise I'll respond to you, but I will try to. <laughs> yeah. And you can also find us at truthmatters.biz. Yes. Courtney said we're eventually transitioning into truthmatters.media. And this is the Truth Matters podcast. So we are on there. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Ethan. podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.